This is Maine Coast Doc Talk, a podcast bringing you the latest news and stories from Maine's working waterfronts. This podcast is brought to you by the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. I'm your host, Ben Martens. Welcome to the first episode of Maine Coast Doc Talks Fish Wrap. And so the idea of this is we're going to be digging into one issue a week that is hitting the news that's important for fishermen to know about within our communities around the country, particularly in Maine. But a lot of these things impact fishermen um, from the Gulf of Mexico to the West Coast, Alaska, all over the place. And so we're really interested in kind of doing a deep dive into one piece in the news that's important to us. And so today we are going to be talking about the concept of 30 by 30 and what that means for the fishing industry, why it could have an impact on our oceans, and what's been happening in Congress, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic and there was an election and everything else. There's some really important things that happened. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself before I throw it to you and just say who you are, where you're coming from. And Lee, can you kick us off? Who are you? And then lead into the bill. What's going on with it? Sure. Thanks, Ben. Lee Halbager, Executive Director for Seafood Harvesters of America. We're a national commercial fishing association representing thousands of fishermen from Alaska to Maine. This 30 by 30 initiative isn't a new initiative necessarily, but the fact that it has been included in a congressional bill is new. We saw this bill introduced a couple weeks ago, 325 page bill, tons and tons of stuff in there. But Title II of this bill is what we are interested in discussing today. So Title II lays out the 30 by 30 initiative, which aims to protect 30% of our federal lands and federal waters by the year 2030. I think it's important to note here that there has been sort of a range of estimates of how much we have already protected, anywhere from, I've heard 23 up to 27%. So in order to make that 30% mark of protected waters, we would have to protect anywhere from 3% to 7%. We're still trying to understand where those estimates are coming from, what calculations are used. We have been told that in order to count to this 30%, areas need to be highly to fully protected. And this is based on an IUCN Center for or Convention on Biological Diversity definition. And most of what is already counting towards that 23 to 27% of protected areas in the U.S., however you want to calculate it, is out in the Western Pacific Hawaiian Monument um, that was first designated by President George W. Bush and then expanded by President Obama. One of the frustrations that we have on the fishing industry side of things is that We do protected areas well through the council process. We have a stakeholder-driven process that's based on science and is pulling in information from various user groups, scientists, researchers, and we're all coming together to the table to, to hammer out of what to protect and how we want to protect it. And these council designated protected areas are not going to count towards this 30%. Let me jump in there. And so the 30% that needs to be protected right now, that's only going to be counted if it's nationally designated. Noah, help me out here. What What does this mean as we're thinking about the big picture and how the fisheries get involved and what this bill would do to the current process that exists for protecting areas in the in the oceans? Totally. 
Thanks, Ben. So for the record, my name is Noah Oppenheim. I am the principal of a consulting firm called Hamara Strategies based here in Brunswick, Maine, with clients on the West Coast, East Coast, DC. It's great to be with you. So Ben, your question centers around one of the two or three major issues that the fishing industry has with the 30 by 30 concept as it's written in this giant bill. And that is, how do you define protect? What is adequate protection? What is functional protection? And what is protection that's based in science and processes that have fishermen at the table, like the fishery management councils? Right now, as, as Lee described, the, in the vision as the proponents of this bill have it is that the only thing you can count as protection is something like a marine monument something that was established using, and they've, they've come up with this new term, enduring measures. In order for a measure to be enduring, according to folks who we've spoken with, that means it has to be permanent. It can't be in, enabled via regulation. And that's the way that the councils implement area-based protections. When, when the Deep Sea Coral Amendment on the New England Council was implemented, it was done by a regulation. The marine monuments are enacted via proclamation and ostensibly those are permanent designations. Another permanent designation you could envision would be something that Congress passed or directly in law or by allowing say a marine sanctuary nomination to move forward. That would be what you would call a, a, a suppose a permanent or an enduring approach the the only way that councils can protect habitat through putting lines on a map is through regulation. So according to this theory that a permanent measure is only the only way you can get to protecting, the council's approaches are out the window from minute one, which is, I think, a, a fundamental problem here if you're talking about, as Lee mentioned, just how excellent of a track record we have in, in many parts of the country in protecting habitat. I worked a lot out on the West Coast uh, on the Pacific Council. That council has enacted very large areas that are prohibited from bottom trawling. Back in the napkin calculations, around 47% of the federal waters off the West Coast has a prohibition on bottom trawling. That's obviously larger than 30%, but under this calculus, it could be rendered meaningless. Certainly, if it's not incorporated into this assessment and assessment of what's protective than fishermen and the council process and, and this thing we've generated with a ton of hard work, sweat, equity, and buy-in would be potentially out the window. So Monique, in the Gulf of Maine, we've got a couple of protected areas. Some of those protected areas have existed for almost 20 years. What are fishermen going to have to be thinking about as this conversation is taking place along with the other conversations about whale protections, offshore wind that's all around our coast, offshore drilling. What are some of the pieces that we need to be thinking about closer to home? Yeah, I think you just kind of touched on them all right there. Everything that's going on in the Gulf of Maine is sort of linked and all impact fishermen in some capacity. We all know how vulnerable fishermen's businesses can be to any type of loss of space where they can fish or anything that increases their cost of doing business. It's already a very expensive industry. I think too for fishermen, anytime you hear the word permanent, you start to get a little nervous. 
And so the, the thing that's sticking out for me from what Noah and Lee were saying is some of the terminology that's being used and how that could help or hinder the process for fishermen. I think that that's the types of things that fishermen are going to be asking and, and thinking about as this moves forward. Lee, in this bill that was dropped a couple of weeks ago that this is included in, climate change is, is really the underlying issue that the bill is trying to address. How does 30% of the ocean protected, how does that address the issue of climate change? I think the answer to this will depend on who you talk to, but I think the theory behind this is that we set up these protected areas that can kind of serve as refuges for fish and other protected species, and they will sort of provide an added layer of resilience as we continue to see changes happen in the ocean, whether that be acidification, whether that be warming. And, and so it's sort of these areas can act as a buffer if you want to kind of think about it in that sense. So, uh, so but would basically, this be closed to all types of fishing or just commercial fishing? Just commercial fishing. Commercial extractive. Noah, you know this definition like right off the bat. Sure. Commercial. Right. And, and yeah, the, the language they use is commercial extractive or destructive use of the ocean. Any of that would be prohibited in areas designated according to this goal. Yeah, I mean, and we, we obviously in the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, but we work with a lot of other industry groups around the country, like in the Gulf of Maine, 50% of the cod is caught by the recreational fleet. Down in the Gulf of Mexico, a large percentage of the snapper and grouper are caught by recreational fleet. So Noah, how do those things mesh? Politics. Politics. Okay, it, simple. Yeah. <laughs> simple, simple and easy. It is very difficult to take on the sport fishing lobby and the proponents of this legislation chose not to. I, I think it's, it's really pointing out one of the major inequities in, in the approach they're taking. So Lee, we just had an election. Elections have consequences. What, what has changed from when the bill was introduced to now that we have a new administration coming into office? And how do we in the industry need to start thinking about the new reality that we're going to be facing? Great question. So we, we do have a new administration. The, presumably Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. He has already made climate change a big part of his platform. So I think we're going to see some pretty immediate action by the Biden administration, likely through executive orders. We are still waiting on two races that will determine who holds the majority in the Senate. Those two races are done in Georgia. Regardless of who wins, the majority is going to be very slim in the Senate. So we will likely not see any sweeping changes made on any legislative front, which means the Biden administration may look to take executive action on a whole host of climate change actions. New York Times reported a couple of days ago that this 30 by 30 could be one of his early day executive orders. I don't know what that would look like, whether it's an executive order that could create a task force that will look at this, or if it's going to be something that will actually create new marine monuments via the antiquities. I think one of the needles that the fishing industry might have to thread here is that we, we are some of the first to see changes that are happening on the water. So 
I think it's important that we don't be perceived as not believing in climate change, but also wanting to protect our businesses and our livelihoods and the food security of Americans who are going to be eating seafood. If we close off vast swaths of the ocean to commercial fishing, we will make up that difference by importing seafood that may or may not meet our sustainability standards that we have here in the U.S. So it's a trade-off, and I think there's a way to do this in a smart way that's driven by science and includes all the stakeholders. Monique, uh, you do a lot of work in communications, talking about seafood, talking about the fishing industry. What are some of the pieces of work that need to be done in the short term to raise awareness about the value of seafood and what role the fishing industry plays in our food systems and, and in the climate discussion? That's a, a big question, Ben, but just that consumer education about seafood and the stories of seafood and how fishermen are impacted by these types of things. I think most importantly, Lee hit the nail on the head with the idea that fishermen are on the front lines of climate change. They're stewards of the oceans. They want to be a part of this process, not left out of it. And so you know, we've had a unique opportunity through this pandemic for some fishermen to be able to sell direct to consumers, and that allowed them the chance to really talk with people about their product and the amount of work it takes to get the product ashore, how expensive fishing is. And I think, you know, the reception from people with those conversations and when you share that type of information with them is eye-opening for them. We're very lucky that we get to live on the coast and that we get to work in, with the fishing industry. It gives us a firsthand knowledge of these things. But even if you go five, ten miles inland, sometimes that information about seafood and fishing does not exist. So, you know, for consumers to be able to learn from organizations like ours or any type of seafood education is super important. Noah, bring us home. What do we need to be thinking about as a fishing industry, as people who care about seafood, about people who care about climate change? What, what are the pieces that, that we need to be paying attention to over the next couple of weeks to months when it comes to 30 by 30 and the short and long-term implications of that? You said elections have consequences, and, and I think that that's a profoundly uh, prudent statement to make here. That there are going to be a lot of changes in the Biden administration from what we saw under the Trump administration and frankly, under the Obama administration, which was faulted by many in the environmental community for not being aggressive enough. So I think they're going to make up for lost time. And the fishing industry, frankly, as frontline agents exposed to climate impacts on the ocean, as the, the people who depend on healthy, sustainable fisheries for their livelihoods to feed their families and the nation and the nation's food security, which depends on you know, both sustainable fisheries and, and smart, intelligent solutions in the ocean designed to properly manage and respond. You know, we're, we, the fishing industry, has to be part of that conversation. Frankly, we haven't been. And that's partly our own fault. I, I honestly think the industry has really been reluctant to engage you know, full, full bore on being part of the climate solution because all too often regulation happens to fishermen, not with fishermen. And decades of that has been alienating. But, but there really has not been much of an olive branch extended yet on this 30 by 30 issue in particular to the fishing industry. To my knowledge, no meaningful consideration or consultation of the industry's perspective 
as these policies were drafted and put together. I'm not aware of yet any programs or policies from the Biden transition team to reach out to working fishing communities, those who want to be part of those climate solutions. And really, you know, if, if we're talking about day one executive orders and probably the most meaningful and consequential action the administration is going to be taking in ocean policy being one of those day one actions, the clock's ticking. It's time for that outreach to happen and those conversations to be uh, happening right now. So I, I, you know, I certainly see the fishing industry as having the voice right now to, to represent itself, to be part of a climate oriented ocean policy future. And the people here on this podcast and many others are very literate in this space and know how to protect fishing jobs and you know, our American seafood legacy as we deal with this stuff. So uh, a lot of work ahead, a lot going on. So we just, we need to be elevating ourselves. Noah, thank you very much for cleaning that up. This is gonna be an ongoing series. We'll be having continuing discussions about what's happening around Maine's fisheries and fisheries around the country. So thank you all for joining me. Lee of Seafood Harvesters, Noah of Homer Strategies and Monique from the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association. That was great. Really appreciate you guys taking some time today to join us. Maine Coast Doc Talk is a production of the Maine Coast Fishermen's Association, an industry-based nonprofit that identifies and fosters ways to restore the fisheries of the Gulf of Maine and sustain Maine's fishing communities for future generations. For more information about our work, to make a donation, or to listen to previous episodes of Doc Talk, you can visit our website, maincoastfishermen.org.